chapters eighteen and nineteen of taken at the flood by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain eighteen parium place parium place had been built by a certain godfrey parium in the days of queen anne on the site where a previous parium place had stood for centuries before the pariums being old in the land when this new parium was built monkhampton returned its member and the free and independent electors to the number of seven and twenty were as serfs and vassals to sir godfrey parium he paid them for their allegiance he or the member he made them vote for but none ever dreamed of voting against sir godfrey's nominee for a great many years the present red brick building had been called the new place but now age had mellowed its ruddy tones the magnolias against the southern front stretched high and wide the mansion had ripened like the fruit on the garden walls with the passage of years parium place consisted of a handsome pedimented centre and two massive wings sculptured garlands adorned the stone frieze the same garlands were repeated in little over doors and windows before the house stretched a noble lawn shaded on one side by a clump of cedars on the other by a group of giant maples on the left of the house lay the flower garden a model of old-fashioned horticulture unimproved by the capability browns of later years on the right were the kitchen gardens rich in commonplace vegetables and boasting no dazzling range of orchard-houses pineries and vineries only an old hotbed or two where the peasant gardeners grew cucumbers in the cucumber season but the want of orchard-houses need be felt but little in a climate where green peas could be grown till november and where fat plums and ruddy peaches ripened uncared for on the buttressed walls parium place of to-day was exactly like the parium place of a hundred years ago entering that cool stone-paved hall and surrounded by that old-fashioned furniture you might have fancied that time had grown no older than the date of yonder eight-day clock which bore its age upon its face in quaint roman numerals like the title-page of an old book it was a fundamental principle with the pariums not to spend any money which they could honourably avoid spending they were not miserly or inhospitable they lived as gentlemen should live dispensed the orthodox benevolence of country gentlemen kept a good table in dining-parlour and servants hall rode good horses but they never frittered away money art they ignored altogether no canvas save that of a family portrait ever graced the walls of parium a few mezzotint engravings oxford bolingbroke pope garrick the great lord chatham and dr johnson graced the oak panelling in the breakfast parlour and these prints were the newest in the house parium succeeded their fathers and followed one another along the trodden way to lethe but no parium ever added to or improved the mansion the things which had satisfied their forefathers satisfied them they were eminently conservative objected to new-fangled ways took their after-dinner wine at a table whose broad expanse of mahogany reflected the ruby of the vintage and avoided all superfluous expenditure of money if the parium housekeeper intent upon the glory of the house ventured to hint at any change in the details of a banquet to suggest that this or that was the fashion up in london freezing was the reply of her lord fashion exclaimed sir aubrey what do i care about fashion do you suppose it matters to me what new-fangled trumpery is invented for parvenu stockbrokers and manchester cotton lords they can have no distinction except in wasting money 
let my table be laid as it was when lord bolingbroke visited my great-grandfather lord bolingbroke always silenced the housekeeper he was almost a living presence at perium the best of the spare bedchambers was still called the bolingbroke room brilliant st john had slept in it when new perium place was only a year old heaven knows what schemes had filled the busy head that pressed yonder pillows years after the fallen statesman had returned to perium for a little while a disappointed man on whose once marvellous life now shone no light save that of woman's faithful love the furniture at perium was old sombre but handsome the more modern portion was of the famous chippendale school perhaps the only original and artistic furniture which england ever produced the rich glow of the prevailing mahogany was relieved and set off by satinwood stringings there were dainty pembroke tables with reeded legs sideboards with brass handles and claw and ball feet capacious arm-chairs with lyre-shaped backs carved by a chisel as correct and delicate in its lines as nature herself what knots of lightest build yet firm as the ediston lighthouse furniture which in its very simplicity had a grace unknown to the florid ornamentation and gilded pitch-pine of the sham louis quatorze school the draperies were of the same date as the chairs and tables indian brocaded curtains whose damask had once been vivid as the plumage of tropical birds still adorned the drawing-room and although faded looked handsomer than any modern fabric of ornament there was very little in that vast saloon with its seven long windows and deep bay at the end overlooking the flower-garden two monster vases of worcester china rich in purple and gold surmounted a florentine marble table in the bay a table that had stood there in the days of lord bolingbroke a second pair of jars huge and oriental adorned the other end of the room on either side the white hearth the tall marble chimney-piece on corinthian columns bore no ornament save clock and candelabra of bronze mounted on pedestals of black marble which coldly contrasted the veinless white of the slab that sustained them no modern frivolities crowded this vast saloon no davenport or dos a dos or central ottoman marred its stern simplicity no fernery or aquarium bespoke the taste of some feminine occupant no photographic album or stereoscope offered diversion to the idle visitor the cell of a model prison could hardly have been less fruitful in diversion for the unthinking mind the amateur of architecture might find something to admire in the three feet deep cornice with its variety of moulding and egg and dart border but save in its architectural beauties the room was barren of interest yet to the thinker there was some charm in its very repose that old world look which told of days gone by when the world was a century and a half younger the present lord of perium was very proud of his drawing-room or saloon as the chamber was religiously entitled not for kingdoms would he have changed an object in that soberly furnished apartment and by this wise conservatism he at once testified his reverence for his ancestors and saved his own money photographic album he exclaimed when some frivolous person suggested that he should adorn one of the chippendale tables with that refuge of the mindless guest there were no photographic albums in the time of bolingbroke and society was a great deal more brilliant then than it is now if people want to amuse themselves let them read pope there's a fine edition in yonder bookcase and the baronet pointed the finger of triumph at a dwarf bookcase defended by brass lattices which extended along one side of his saloon 
here neatly ranged were all those authors whose reputation increases daily among a generation by which they are for the most part unread pope prior gay swift st john addison and steele sir aubrey forgot that the key of that treasury had been mislaid fifteen years ago and that the books were dusted with a feather brush that went between those criss-crossed wires in the west front were sir aubrey's apartments bedroom vast gloomy dressing-room larger than most modern bedrooms study a mere closet and the southern end of the house communicating by a narrow passage with the baronet's rooms and overlooking the kitchen garden were the apartments which had been occupied without change for the last thirty years by sir aubrey's brother mordred perriam the ancient saxon name was almost mr perriam's sole heritage from his ancient race and but for a stray two hundred a year that came to him from the maternal side of the house mordred perriam would have been dependent upon his brother for support as it was mr perriam lived with his brother and lived free of expense he spent the greater part of his own income upon his library a heterogeneous collection of second-hand books bought haphazard of those provincial booksellers with whom he kept up a never-ending correspondence they were such volumes as martin scriblerus or dominie sampson might have rejoiced in but which would hardly have provoked the envy of a modern collector brown leather bindings ancient editions in which the least voluminous author generally ran into forty volumes queer old ribbed paper queer old type no single set perfect authors whose names are only preserved in the dunciad authors whose brief span of popularity has left no record whatever english obscurities french obscurities roman obscurities german obscurities cumbered the bookworm's shelves till to hunt for a genuine classic amidst that uncatalogued chaos was half a day's labour mr perriam had begun many catalogues struggling on with infinite toil trotting to and fro between his desk and the shelves with meekest patience but the catalogues always ended in muddle he was always buying and the supplementary catalogue which his latest purchases rendered necessary bothered his somewhat feeble brains his fly-leaves and addenda grew thicker than the original volume and he abandoned his task in wild despair after all he knew his books and could have recited all their titles though perhaps in many cases unfamiliar with their contents he used to imagine that he had a particular desire to read such and such an author till he got the author at home but the volumes once snug on his shelves the desire seemed somehow appeased when his learned friends talked of an author mr perriam used to say ah i've got him he was too honest to say i've read him the apartments devoted to mr perriam were airy and spacious like all the rest of the house but large as they were his books overran them from floor to ceiling under the windows over the mantelpiece wherever a shelf could be put appeared those endless rows of brown-backed volumes hardly brightened here and there by the faded crimson labels of some later editions mr perriam could not afford to be a connoisseur in bindings no costly tooled calf no gilded vellum no perfumed russia gratified his sense of scent or feeling but in his very poverty there lurked a blessing he had taught himself to patch the old bindings to stain and sprinkle and marble the dust-blackened edges and he never was more serenely content than when he sat at his work-table and dabbed and fitted and pasted and furbished the battered old volumes with the aid of a glue-pot a few scraps of calfskin a little vermilion a big pair of scissors and inexhaustible patience 
in his heart of hearts mr perriam felt that could he begin life again he would wish to be a bookbinder mr perriam's library overlooked the kitchen garden it was a spacious room with a deep bay like that which at the other extremity of the house formed the end of the drawing-room in the days when there were children at perriam this room had been the nursery immediately adjoining it was mr perriam's bedchamber and next to that a smallish dressing-room which communicated by means of a dark little passage with sir aubrey's bedroom the brothers were honestly attached to each other different as were their habits and liked to be within call of each other sir aubrey's valet slept in his master's dressing-room but mr perriam had no body-servant that was a luxury or an encumbrance which he persistently denied himself nor would his wardrobe have afforded either employment or perquisites for a valet he never possessed but one suit of clothes wore those garments nearly threadbare and passed them on when done with to an underling in the garden a deaf old man who wheeled a barrow of dead leaves all the autumn and rolled the lawns and gravel walks when there were no leaves to fill his barrow this old gardener used to prowl about the gardens looking like the wraith or double of mr perriam when there were visitors at the place mr perriam rarely showed himself when sir aubrey had no guests the brothers dined together but while the baronet was away mr perriam always dined in his own den and turned the leaves of some late acquisition as he ate his dinner he was a slow reader and had been three years poring over an old copy of dante and addling his poor old brains with the commentaries which obscured the text if he took a walk it was in the kitchen garden he liked those prim quadrangles of pot-herbs the straight narrow walks the espalier bounded strawberry beds the perfect order and quiet of the place and above all he liked to know that no chance visitor at perriam would surprise him there he brought his books here on summer mornings and paced the paths slowly reading as he walked or dozed over an open volume in yonder summer-house before the fish-pond on sultry afternoons he trotted up and down between the bare beds for his constitutional in midwinter the kitchen garden was all he knew of the external world and all he cared to know so long as he could conduct all his transactions with booksellers through the convenient medium of the post so passed his harmless uneventful life and if no man could say that mordred perriam had ever done him a service assuredly none could charge him with a wrong nineteen love thou art leading me from wintry cold sir aubrey and his brother dined tete-a-tete -tete on the evening of that day on which mrs carford left the brief shelter of the schoolhouse to resume her place in life's endless procession the dining-room of perriam faced the northwest and commanded a fine side view of the setting sun one saw the day-god sink to his rest without being inconvenienced by his expiring splendour it was eight o'clock and that western glory was fading but sir aubrey liked the twilight it was at once soothing and economical and the baronet did not forget how large a cheque he annually wrote for the monkhampton tallow chandler people talked of the cheapness and brilliancy of gas but queen anne herself could not have been more averse from that garish light had it been suddenly introduced to her notice than was sir aubrey gas at perriam gas-pipes to disfigure those old crystal chandeliers which took all the hues of a peacock's breast in the sunshine august shade of my grandfather exclaimed sir aubrey what goth can counsel such desecration sir aubrey and his brother sat in the gloaming and talked or at least mordred talked and sir aubrey made believe to listen 
the bookworm's harmless babble about his last bargain with a bristol bookseller did not demand much strain upon the listener's attention sir aubrey gave a vaguely acquiescent murmur now and then and that was enough indeed sir aubrey's mind had been wandering a little throughout the ceremony of dinner and now he sat in a thoughtful attitude with his glass of claret not diminished looking down into the shadowy gulfs of the polished mahogany table as if to read the visions he beheld there it was not of his brother's newly acquired twelve-volume edition of chatterton that he thought but of a fair young face he had seen last night in the garden of headingham schoolhouse mordred he exclaimed suddenly did you ever wonder why i have not married no said mr perriam i never wonder but i should think the reason was clear enough to the meanest comprehension you have never forgotten poor guinevere forgotten her no and never shall forget her yet if at my sober age it were possible for a man to feel a romantic love the love of a poet rather than a man of the world do you think he ought to trample upon the flower because it has blossomed late do you mean to say that you have fallen in love asked mordred aghast i have seen a face lovely enough to bewitch a saint or a hermit to thaw the coldest heart that time ever froze i don't admit that i'm in love that would be too great a folly but i feel within me a faculty which i deemed i had long outlived the capacity to fall in love mordred perriam put his hands to his head and rubbed his scanty grey hair distractedly he thought his brother was going mad poor guinevere he said feebly as if the shade of that patrician lady were outraged by sir aubrey's folly if she could have lived to see this day if she had lived i might have been the happy father of many children answered sir aubrey as it is the estate must go to horace perriam whenever you and i are laid beside our ancestors that seems hard said mr perriam who was able to appreciate this common-sense view of the question if you could find anybody now to replace lady guinevere of the same rank an alliance which you might be proud of sir aubrey sighed and was silent his chief purpose in marriage ought to be to provide himself with an heir how was he to confront that heir in after-life if he could not name his maternal grandfather if for all genealogical purposes the child were on the maternal side grandfatherless he sighed again and with increasing despondency at my age my dear mordred a man can hardly hope to marry a duke's daughter i shall never meet another guinevere lord bolingbroke's second wife was a frenchwoman he consulted his heart rather than his interest bolingbroke married the niece of madame de maintenon and the widow of a marquis true but he married for love said sir aubrey impatiently late in life a man should marry for love if he is to marry at all he has so short a span left him in which to be happy a twenty a man can afford to consult his interest and marry a woman he doesn't care for a youth of domestic misery may be compensated by a middle age of worldly success but at my age there is nothing left for a man to wish for except happiness mr perriam regarded his brother in helpless wonderment was this abstract philosophy or the foolishness of an elderly egotist i should have thought you were happy in your present position said the brother mildly you have perriam for a country-house and your entresol in the faubourg st honore snug and not very expensive when you are tired of perriam you go to paris 
when you are tired of paris you return to parium you have boots and slippers and brushes and combs and shirts and a dress suit at both places no packing no bustle and your valet here is your cook and general servant there what could be pleasanter if one must move at all an empty life at best said sir aubrey and monotonous the fact of the matter is he went on in a business-like tone that for some years past i have felt it my duty to marry if i have shrunk from that duty preferring the repose and serenity of a bachelor's life i have felt myself guilty of moral cowardice it is hard that perium should descend to one who is all but a stranger horace perium a starched prig in the war office said mordred there is not such another kitchen garden in the west of england he added with a sigh if you could find some one of suitable rank i don't say a duke's daughter but of suitable rank some good old family bearing arms which the periums need not blush to quarter with their own this was harping on a string which mordred had been accustomed to hear twanged by his elder brother he was surprised to find the baronet indifferent or even contemptuous about this question of rank as to family he said the periums ought to be like the bourbons great enough to give rank to their children without aid from the mother the sons of louis quatorze were all princes my son will be sir aubrey perium by and by and he could have been no more than sir aubrey perium if poor guinevere had been his mother mordred made haste to agree with his brother he rarely disputed a point with any one unless it was a purely literary question such as the reason of ovid's exile or tasso's madness or the identity of the man in the iron mask or the authorship of junius's letters you have seen some one perhaps whom you admire some young lady belonging to one of our county families said mordred he could not suppose that his brother's eye had fallen to any lower depth than the county families sir aubrey winced he had been so bigoted a high priest in the temple of the family god and the family god was cast how could he justify such a sacrilege as would be involved in his admiration of a village schoolmaster's daughter i have certainly seen some one i admire he said with a curious shyness and almost juvenile shame in this late-born love a young lady who is very pretty very amiable altogether worthy of admiration a young lady whose affection might make any man proud and happy but she is not of a particularly good family or if her father belongs to an old and respectable family which is not impossible since his name is a good one he is reduced in circumstances and occupies a somewhat humble position a curate perhaps suggested mordred vaguely no he is not in the church good gracious exclaimed mordred with an odd look you don't mean to say that he is in trade no he is not in trade mr perriam breathed more freely i am glad of that he said i live so secluded from the world that it might seem unimportant to me but i shouldn't like to think that any stigma of that kind could attach to us in future the actual fact might be glossed over in burke's landed gentry but people would remember it all the same never mind details my dear mordred returned sir aubrey after all what i have been talking about is perhaps but an idle dream you ought to marry said mordred thinking of his kitchen garden 
he begrudged the air the reversion of those neat walks by the box-bordered beds where a narrow line of hardy flowers stalks sweet william mignonette or nasturtium screened the broccoli and onions that grew within the boundary the dear old garden with its red earthenware sea-kale pots peeking out of the greenery and that delicious herby odour which pervades country kitchen gardens ah said sir aubrey with a sigh i shall never marry unless it be for love mr perriam smiled approvingly across the wide shining table but his soul was full of wonder all human love except his mild affection for aubrey had withered in his heart thirty years ago indeed there had never been warmth enough in that placid temperament to kindle the flame of love woman he looked upon as a race apart useful doubtless after their lower kind but to be kept at the furthest possible distance by the sage marriage mr perriam regarded as a stern necessity for elder sons the younger scions of a great race more happy could slip through life untried in the matrimonial furnace that any one should cumber himself with a wife save when compelled to that burden by the exigencies of a fine estate seemed to mr perriam almost incredible a wife who would doubtless take odd volumes of his books from their shelves to mislay them or meddle with his papers he thanked providence for having made him the cadet of the house for love repeated aubrey to himself for love how mordred and all the world would laugh at my folly if i dared indulge it love at fifty-seven years of age and for a girl young enough to be my granddaughter it is too wild a folly yet if a true affection could be possible to a man of my age it ought to be possible for me i have not frittered away my stock of feeling upon passing fancies my life has been free from the follies that waste the hearts of some men late as the day comes i ought to be able to love truly and to win a true heart if i have but courage to seek for one shall i seek it where this new fancy draws me shall i trust the augury of eyes and lips that speak but of innocence and truth the butler came to light the candles in the tall silver branches of pseudo-classic design tell morgan to saddle splinter said sir aubrey i'm going for a ride so late aubrey exclaimed mordred who liked a quiet evening with his brother it was nice to be able to prose about his last acquisition to some listener of his own rank and if aubrey did not listen mordred was too much engrossed by his own discourse to notice the inattention i like a ride in this half-light answered the baronet i was out last night till ten yes said mordred with a sigh i shall be glad when the winter comes and we return to our old ways a big fire burning in the saloon and you and i on opposite sides of the hearth on nice long evenings rather dull drawled sir aubrey with a yawn dull when we have each other's company yes that's all very well but don't you think that for two old fellows like us a fair young face would brighten the picture an innocent joyous-hearted girl who would be a wife to me and yet seem a daughter to both of us a clear young voice that would fill this old house with music our lives are placid enough as it is but don't you think such a change as i speak of might make them happy eh mordred changes which disturb tranquillity in the hope of realizing happiness are apt to end in disappointment replied mr perriam with the sententiousness of a solon it was not a pleasant speech 
and sir aubrey felt angry with his brother a rare sensation on his part for he had a protecting kindness for this younger brother whose eccentricities touched the border-line of weakness splinter is at the door sir aubrey said the butler and without another word to mordred sir aubrey departed ah moaned his brother when he had watched horse and rider vanish in the shades of evening this comes of letting a woman mix herself up with his thoughts he's changed to me already sir aubrey took the shortest way to headingham it was a foolish fancy no doubt which impelled him to take this evening ride but the scent of the hedgerows was sweet the air balmy a faint breath of the distant sea blended with the cool odours of newly shorn fields there was in short no reason why a country gentleman should not enjoy the shadowy landscape instead of dozing in his favourite armchair by his barren hearth but sir aubrey hardly looked at the landscape his thoughts were swifter than splinter and flew on ahead of him and lighted upon sylvia carew he could think of no excuse for an evening visit to the schoolhouse all day long he had resisted the impulse that urged him to go there and now in the evening after that useless battle with inclination he was weak enough to indulge his fancy what excuse should he make for intruding upon the schoolmaster's privacy he that all-powerful the lord of the soil was positively obliged to ask himself that question miss carew was not a picture hanging on a wall in a public gallery a fair face which strangers might gaze upon at their pleasure lofty as was the height which raised him above these people there were certain conventionalities to be observed even by him he left his horse at the inn and walked on towards the schoolhouse a light was burning in the parlour and the door was shut he had hoped to find mr carew smoking his pipe in the open doorway as he had found him yesterday it seemed a very serious thing to knock at the door almost enough to commit him to some serious step in the future he looked about him doubtfully early as it was no creature was visible dim lights twinkled here and there in cottage windows the children's voices were silent the headingham day was over sir aubrey began to feel that it was very late indeed he took out his watch there was just enough light for him to see the figures on its white face a quarter to nine yes decidedly too late for him to intrude upon the schoolmaster without any definite object well he had gratified his fancy by this evening ride there was nothing better for him to do than to go back again stay what was that a glimpse of something white yonder among the dark trees in the churchyard something which moved a woman's dress a girlish figure tall and slim robed in white twice had he seen sylvia in a white gown was it she he went round to the churchyard gate and entered that domain of shadow where the deep gloom of the foliage seemed to typify the deep sleep of those who lay beneath its shade he walked slowly looking about him as if contemplative of the tombs and in a few minutes found the object of his quest it was sylvia and no other she had seated herself on a low tombstone when he found her in a thoughtful attitude her folded arms resting on a headstone that leaned lopsided against the tomb where she sat her drooping head leaning on her arms how perfect a statue of meditation thought sir aubrey yet what can she have to think so deeply about his approaching footsteps startled the thinker sylvia lifted her head and looked up at him just able to recognize him in that shadowy place 
good evening miss carew i fear i disturbed pleasant meditations no sir aubrey my thoughts were sad i am thankful to have them dispelled what can one so young and fair have to do with sadness the girl was not prepared to answer that question plainly i suppose there is some care in every life mine had to do with the troubles of others i thought as much youth and innocence can have few cares of its own and pray remember miss carew if ever you have need of a friend you may command my services as lord of the manor i naturally take a warm interest in all that concerns Eddingham. he added lest his offer of friendship should seem particular this qualification made the whole speech sound conventional i wish he would give me some money to send to mrs carford thought sylvia for the shadow of last night's visitor had haunted her all the day but i could not stoop so low as to beg of him and of course he means nothing but a mere hollow civility your father is at home i suppose inquired the baronet yes sir aubrey then i think i should like to look in upon him and say a word or two about this new schoolhouse if you are quite sure he is disengaged i am quite sure he does nothing but read the paper of an evening he will be proud to receive your visit End of chapters 18 and 19